Welcome to the Good Fight Radio Show, a program dedicated to bringing you vital and uncompromised truths that you won't hear in the mainstream media, discussing contemporary issues in light of the Bible and how these issues relate to family, culture, and the church. The heart of this show is to glorify Jesus Christ and expose the works of darkness as he is commanded in Ephesians 5.11. Now here's your host, Good Fight Ministries' own Chad Davidson. Who is the devil according to Scripture? Whether you go by Satan or call him Lucifer or Beelzebub or Baal, the fact is is that the Scriptures in detail talk about this figure, Satan. And on today's episode, we are going to be talking about that because we want to know what does the Bible say who, in fact, the devil is? And so with me today is president and founder of Good Fight Ministries and pastor of Blessed Hope Chapel in Simi Valley, California, Pastor Joe Schimmel. Hey, how you doing, bro? Ready to get into it, man, and really, you know, discover who the real enemy is, uh, who God reveals as the, you know, the one who's been a murderer from the beginning and father lies. And a lot of Christians today are unaware that we are in a spiritual battle for our souls and we need to be putting our armor on if we're going to survive spiritually. No, and I think you kind of started us off already just with that intro in getting us in the right track because, you know, you have talked about this and we've talked about this on other shows that may be dealing with end times and stuff like that. But a lot of times people don't recognize how their view on who Satan is, according to scripture, who the devil is, how it really does affect their day-to-day walks. People don't recognize that. And there is this tendency to pendulum swing. And you could be on one side where it's like every single thing is the devil, but sometimes it's the flesh, sometimes it's the world, right? And then you could swing that pendulum and say, well, I don't want to think that every single thing is from the devil, so I'm going to swing this pendulum, and really nothing is. And in fact, Satan's been bound. There's, he's not even here. Don't even worry about that. And I know, Joe, and I've brought this up a couple of times, but I think I'd be amiss knowing and seeing with my own eyes as a younger believer, somebody who was taken astray because they no longer believe that Satan was really at work today, and because of that, it really did change their entire walk with Christ. Yeah, that was, I think I know who you're talking about, uh, someone who adopted preterism, and their entire family just kind of followed into that. And right now, their faith has become, their entire faith, even in Christ, from what I understand, has become totally shipwrecked. It's, uh, yeah, they came to the conclusion, well, Satan is basically already, you know, been thrown in the lake of fire. And, you know, and therefore, they were no longer having their guard up. And the scriptures tell us in Second Corinthians 10, uh, three, four, five, right around that area, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or physical, but they're mighty to the pulling down of strongholds and casting down imaginations, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, uh, that we might you know, bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Uh, so why does Paul stress that our weapons are not physical? Like Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Jesus said, if my kingdom was of this world, then my servants would fight. Why is there a stress on the spiritual war? Well, because Paul also said, uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So we're not to be unaware of Satan's devices, uh, Ephesians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, and we're supposed to put on the full armor of God so we can stand against the wiles, the methodius, uh, the methods, uh, the Greek methodius uh, of the devil. So if we're not aware of our enemy, we're not putting the armor on, and therefore we are in 
danger, not it's just going to happen. We're going to be wiped out because we're called to resist and steadfast in the faith. If we're not putting the whole armor of God on, if we're not being vigilant, if we're not being uh, showing a diligence and, and, and uh, vigilance, where Peter says, "Be sober, be vigilant for your adversary, the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour." If you're not watchful, if you don't have the armor on, you're going to be devoured, and that's what's happening to so much of the. Uh, professing body of Christ. That's why you have all these churches that have adopted so many false views because they don't have their guard up and they're not sticking to the scripture. Yeah. No, I, I think even that last point you made, it, it's so important for us to understand that because a lot of people accept these, these things where there might be differences of opinions and so forth. But, you know, let's make sure we're congenial and so forth. And that's fine to be congenial and be sweet and, and, and gentle with people and speak with grace as though seasoned with salt. Amen. But the reality is a lot of times the inner linking with people that now don't even see Satan as, as a foe. I mean, yeah. he's a, and, and not recognizing. And I think about this all the time, right? You, you think in sports, whether you're talking about physical combat sports or baseball or basketball, so often a very good team or a very good fighter or something will lose to somebody who they looked past because they're worried about the next yeah. opponent and they'll forget that there's somebody right in front of them. Let alone when this someone is someone that, according to Jude, that not even the Archangel Michael brings up a railing accusation, but rather says, the Lord rebuke you. So also, I think if we we could maximize Satan to the place where it's this dualistic, uh, you know, theology where Satan and God are on the same wavelengths, which is an absolute joke, or we could get it to the place where we go, oh, he's so weak and I can be like Kenneth Copeland and laughing at him during my prayers, really praying to Satan when you think about it and some of the things that go on. So all of this is to say, and all of this introduction from us is to say, this is an important topic to get right. Yeah. In fact, yeah. it's interesting you use sports as an analogy. Paul used sports often and looking past your opponent. Uh, there is the heavyweight champion of the world, Anthony Joshua, British champion, had three of the four belts, right? Well, he was looking forward to the biggest fight in boxing history, money-wise, fighting Tyson Fury, also a British guy, and they were looking 100 million easy plus, you know, uh, cashing in on that fight. But this last weekend, he fought a guy named Alexander Usyk, and Alexander Usyk uh, unified the cruiserweight division, got all the belts, dominated, moved up. But guess what? He's a small guy, man. He's like this guy from Ukraine, and you know, he boxes really well. But you know, Joshua should just manhandle him, right? Just destroy him. That's what most people were saying that. He'd be knocked out in so many rounds, and guess what? He probably looked past him because he was looking at the Tyson Fury fight coming up in the future, or whoever would win between Fury and Wilder, maybe, because they have to fight, I guess. And then uh, he looked past Usyk, and he got, got his rear end kicked, man. I mean, he most lost most of those rounds in the 12th round. This little guy was almost knocked him out, you know? And he and, and guess what? He's he's thinking, probably thinking, man, I got to look forward to this, man. I look forward to this, and... and and boom. And a lot of Christians are not even realizing they have an enemy. They're, I mean, they're looking way past what he was doing with Usyk, perhaps, uh, in a far more radical way. They're like, they are like they just get up and they don't think about putting their armor on. They don't think that there's a roaring lion after them. They don't realize that the enemy's been, as he was against Job, sizing him up, thinking of trying to get past that hedge that God built. And, and a lot of Christians get devoured and their faith is destroyed. Yeah. So it's serious. No, it's it's so serious, and you know, like we, we do like to draw on these analogies because that's what Scripture does. Paul spoke about it over and over again. We're not like the pugilist, the boxer, right? That just beats in the air and so forth. But we we fight and we race and we do these things battle. to win, and they are a real battle. And you do have to have your armor on. And the first thing you do is fall under the mighty hand of God because we need His strength yep. and not our own. 
And so when it comes to all of this, and then when everything is considered, it's always, well, who is Satan according to scripture? I guess the best thing to do is let's go to the first appearance that we have in scripture and let's start there. And we're going to work our way through the scriptures and we're going to do this alongside you guys. And I think if, if you're someone who's a regular listener to the Good Fight Radio Show, whether you're on podcast, if you're driving, please don't have your Bibles out right now. But other than drivers, I, I think this is a great teaching to have your Bibles out, have them ready to be able to go and say, what does the scripture say on this? Yeah, we'll cover a lot of ground in an hour and we'll try to hop from scripture to scripture a bit so we don't just cover Genesis 3. And we'll also interact with different scholarly vantage points on, you know, who Satan is or who he isn't supposedly and Get into what we think the scriptures clearly say and what even scholarship is missing to a degree. Amen. Amen. So Genesis 3, we'll start with verse 1 for you guys who are taking notes. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave it also to her husband with her. And he ate. So we have the first appearance of Satan. What are some of the things we can draw out from these just couple of statements? Yeah, and and before we draw some of those statements out, which I think is why we're basically here, is let's establish the fact that we are dealing with Satan here. Uh, There is controversy as to whether the serpent is literally Satan. This entity is fallen in Eden, and he is literally Satan. Or whether he's an entity that God created among the beasts of the field, which he seems to say, and it's a double reference to the serpent, the creature that Satan channels or uses. Uh, Many in the early church viewed this as a channel that Satan used. Uh, Some scholarship today, like Michael Heiser, uh, who spends a whole lot of time on writing Satan and demons, believes this is literally Satan right here. That serpent was a, that is referenced here, is literally who the devil is, and this, this serpent alone, not that Satan used the serpent, but the serpent is Satan, and this refers to him in his fallen state in Genesis. Uh, uh, and I do personally believe that this is a, this, and I understand that view, and I respect, you know, the people that, many of the people that have that viewpoint, but uh, some would divorce, divorce this totally from Satan altogether. You can't do that because it's very clearly a reference to Satan. I believe it's a reference to the creature that Satan's using. There's this double reference here because there is, in verses 16, 17 or so, the condemnation and the judgment on Satan is that the seed of the woman would crush his head. Uh, and of course, he would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, which would be the Messiah. Uh, but it's interesting because when you get to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says, And the great dragon was cast down, uh, the old serpent, or the serpent of old, depending on the translation you have, means the same thing. It says, Who is called the devil, Diabolos, and Satan, Satanas, Diabolos, accuser or, or slander, uh, Satanas, opposer. And it says, Who deceives the whole world. And he was cast down, and his angels were cast down with him at the end of that verse there. So from Genesis to Revelation, you get this link between the serpent here, and he's actually deceiving the whole world, and it begins with the deception of the woman. Uh, Heiser, because he looks at the anointed cherub, and he recognizes, as we would agree with, and I'm sure we'll get into later, uh, in Ezekiel 28, uh, you have the anointed cherub who's fallen, 
which is a reference definitely, I believe, and I know you believe as well, Chad, uh, to the fallen angel, Satan, who fell. Uh, he, he believes because in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, the, the, the term seraphim could possibly be translated, you know, if you look at the etymology, possibly in, in reference to scales or a serpent and so forth. Although most scholars agree the best translation of that word is burning ones, and I think that fits the context because they're, they've got their two of their wings over their faces, two, two of their wings over their, their feet, and with two wings they fly, you know, and they're burning because they're in the very presence of God, who is, Isaiah says, who can dwell in the everlasting burnings, I mean, because God is a consuming fire, and, and he's so holy and so radical. So I don't agree with the reference that this, although I, I've been open to it, and I've checked it out, that this could be a direct reference to Satan himself. I believe it's 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 the serpent is being channeled there, but uh Nevertheless, it, he, the serpent is tied to Satan, and forever that's become one of his titles. And it would be good now, Chad, to probably yeah, explore some of the texts because we could find out a lot about the book of beginnings. Like when G, we just dealt with divorce and remarriage and so forth recently, right? What do we do? Jesus brought us back to the beginning. Yeah. Well, when we deal with this subject, I think it's great that we start here in Genesis chapter 3 to see how he works. And, and I want you also, this is a good time for maybe people to understand where we come from, from a biblical hermeneutic or a biblical understanding of Scripture, because when we use something like the New Testament, that clearly gives a commentary on what's going on here about who is the right. serpent of old, we go, oh, well, that is fixed and finished. We don't have to wonder, oh, I wonder what Amen. this is now. It's been right. fixed and finished. That's and why there's so yeah. much intertextualism when we speak, and we're always quoting other scriptures, trying to show you guys, encourage you guys uh, how the Bible ties together as one book. It's one author, and Genesis 3 goes with Revelation 12, verse 9, radically, you know, showing us exactly what's going on here. In fact, he leads... Eve, and then Adam, into spiritual death. And he lies like crazy right here. And that ties into John eight forty four, where Jesus says that Satan was uh, a murderer from the beginning and that he's the father of lies. Well, what's the father? The beginner of lies, you know? All ties together. But go on, Chad. No, no, and it's perfect because I think this is great. And he talked about the book of beginnings too. So this is another, uh, just another thing to maybe help anyone who's, you know, maybe you're just starting to study the scriptures as well, especially myth. Maybe you're a non-believer who clicked on this because you want to know about the devil. I don't know. And so you're checking this out. One of the ways that we're going to be interpreting Scripture, he went through Genesis. And, you know, I heard one scholar say, and I really enjoyed what he said, that in, in the Torah, which are the first five books, that a lot of the Torah commentates on, on what happens in Genesis. Yeah. And then when you go from there, from the Torah, starting in Joshua all the way through Malachi, a lot of that, especially when you get to in the Psalms and so forth, commentate on a lot of what the Torah has said. Yeah. Right? And then when you get the in the New Testament, not keeping it and so forth. <laughs> Amen. And then when you get in the New Covenant, not only to point forward towards Jesus, but also explains everything and reveals everything from what has been revealed in the right. Old and Covenant. Since, Chad, yeah. you're exploring that paradigm a little bit. Yeah. In, in Genesis, you got paradise lost, right? Well, in Torah, it's like, okay, now I'm bringing you back into the promised land. I'm bringing you into the promised land, which is like the New Eden, right? And then the new covenant comes, and I'm bringing a new heaven and a new earth, which was also promised through the prophets. So the promised land Israel becomes a prototype of the new Jerusalem that's to come. And Satan's desire from the beginning is to get them out of Eden, get them to turn to dust, death, and keep us ultimately from the ultimate promised land. And in the new covenant, we have that motif of uh, what happened to them in the wilderness and how they didn't make it into the promised land. Uh, that becomes They become examples to us that we should not follow in the same way they did. So everything just fits together, but that same enemy rages throughout the entire time trying to keep us from our journey. And that, that gets us right into perfectly looking at, you have the first words that we hear from Satan in Scripture, 
And this is what it, this is what it clearly says. And he said to the woman, "Indeed, has God said?" I think we could start right there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that is. Uh, he's basically trying to get her to doubt God's word, right? Has God said? And that's what Satan does to this day. In fact, he does two specific things with God's word here. Has God said? In other words, hmm, has he said? Meaning, you know, is is he holding back on you, Eve? You know, I mean, he knows, and we're going to get into the rest of the text. So he basically implies that, you know, God is not being true to you. He's hiding something. Is his word really trustworthy? And a little bit later, a couple verses, he's going to just flat out deny God's word and say, you know, he's going to basically totally contradict what God says and say, thou shalt surely not die. Yeah, as Zachary says in verse 4, he says, you surely will not die. So I, I think right here, you have him first questioning, right? Put questioning in her head, the fiery darts of the enemy, as it talks yep. about in Ephesians chapter 6. But then you have him, as you said, affirming the thing which he already questioned, yeah. which is, you surely will not die. I know it's we could parallel this to a million things, but I remember listening to the Rob Bells of the world. Mm-hmm. He would always be, have, oh, I just have all these questions, until he finally affirmed, oh, yeah, there's no hell. Yeah, no, you that's know? a great, and great so illustration, forth, that, Chad. You know? And it's because that, we were warning about Rob Bell before he totally went off the rails, saying, hey, this guy right here, I mean, I forget what book it was. It's one of the we exposed in our video called The Emerging Church, one of our documentaries. Love wins. Where he basically talks about, you know, doctrine not being really that important, you know? You could give up this doctrine, and if you give up that doctrine, it was before Love Wins, actually. Oh, and, yes. Yeah, yes, and he yes. talks about how— The resurrection, it, it's yeah. like It's like a mattress. So if one doctrine doesn't work, you know, like let's say the virgin birth is denied, you're basically just losing a spring in the mattress, so you don't have to— you know, and he, I'm like, what are you doing? You're suggesting that we can jettison certain doctrines, and that's in the name of, hey, you'll be able to bounce on the mattress still. And I was warning about that. And I wasn't the only one. There's different people in discernment ministries warning about it. This guy is leading you astray. And Chad, when you mention, because that's what's happening here, it's incremental. Hath God said? Then she's dialoguing. Hmm. Says the Rob Bell. Hath God said? Or, and then before you know it, he's just flat out denying the scripture. You know? Yeah, no, it's interesting because you bring that up about the the mattresses. And man, we can't even get through Genesis 3. But, I, I, I you know, we were talking about the early church and Tertullian. One of the things they would always have a lot of times in the early baptismal formulas was affirming that Satan was a real entity as well. And so that was actually a, an affirmation in the early church in yeah. a lot of them. And so when we see those things going on, we go, what's going on here? And when you have first the questioning of God's word and when you question God's word, who, what, our God cannot lie, right? When you question God's word, you also question his character. Because Absolutely. if you have to wonder, can God lie to me? Yeah. You're, you're, you're wondering about his character. If and then his he word is faithful it. and true, then he's not faithful and true. Or he's not powerful enough to vouchsafe what he's declared, which would make him less than the God of the Bible. And therefore, he would be a false witness about himself. Uh, you know, because we can't spend our whole time in Genesis and we said we cover a lot of ground, let's basically sum up basically the four main lies he says here. One is uh, casting denial of God's word. Okay. One is the promise that you shall not surely die. Uh, and one is that you get esoteric knowledge by tapping into the tree of knowledge of good and evil or gnosis. And a lot of the Gnostics in the second and third century were the greatest opponents of the early church use this very text to say, this is really Sophia, the liberator, channeling the serpent to show us that we are gods, which is the next lie. So you have this idea that you can tap into esoteric knowledge to get get more knowledge. You can become God. You don't really die. And also, uh, just a flat-out denial of God's word. And by the way, I've tried to warn people for years, these four tenets are the tenets of the occult and the New Age movement today. They believe 
They doubt God's word. Oh, they'll use little parts of it, just like Satan quotes scripture in Matthew chapter 4. So he'll use the Bible, Luke chapter 4 as well, against Jesus, trying to deceive him with scripture. So he'll use it, but he'll cast doubt on it. That's what they do in the New Age movement. They'll take a little piece of scripture, then they'll talk all about reading your palm and, and fortunes and channelers and all this other stuff. And then number two, they say, you don't really die. You get reincarnated. And a lot of the spirits they channel claim to be reincarnated entities that continue to live. They didn't experience the death penalty. That's the second lie. And then the idea that, you know, so we got the denial of God's word. We got the idea that you you, you don't really die. We got the idea number three. Uh, so we changed order. We got the idea that you can tap into this esoteric knowledge and you realize your divinity. That's the lie of the New Age movement, that we are gods. That's the all four of those things. By the way, before I was a Christian, before I even believed in Satan, I thought Christianity was a joke. I thought, uh, yeah, the devil, because I was brainwashed when I was a little kid, you know, Flip Wilson and all that. You know, the devil made me do it. And the idea of the devil in spandex with the pitchfork and this ponytail. And I was just this little kid thinking, oh, that's stupid, you know, to believe in that. And I didn't understand that there were spiritual forces that are very real. And long story short, because I don't want to give my whole testimony, but I opened myself up to the satanic forces by rejecting the God of the Bible, rejecting Christianity, writing songs like your disappointment is your friend, meaning you'll be set free of playing Jesus' words when you realize that God isn't real, the God of the Bible isn't true, and your God is your myth, your myth is your God, things like that. There was a denial of God's word, okay? There was the encouragement in my music to tap into esoteric knowledge, the, the other lie, uh, which was I had lyrics like, you know, uh, you know, Tiki Tom Nini Boy, where he goes through reincarnation. There's the other lie. He comes from a tiki, from an Indian boy. He becomes a fly, you know, struggling to stay afloat again like Tiki Tom was early in the song and tapping into the gnosis, you know, is it all worth life on earth to be a fly, a flower, a president without power, a bum in the park, a priest in the dark, a scalp without hair, a town with no fear, as the song said. And then it says, uh, born into a world of problems and pleasures of all shapes and sizes, reaching your mind, you'll find all kinds of surprises. Color and sound are all around. Our greatest senses remain to be found. So it was about rejecting God and tapping into esoteric knowledge. So the lies, even in that song, was occult knowledge. It was that we are going through transmigration, okay? Uh, my other song's the denial of God's word. And the fact, I even, one of my lyrics was, I feel big, I feel godly. But I didn't use it in the Christian sense. It wasn't like, I feel godly, meaning that I'm going to live a godly life and fear God and love him. It was, no, I feel like God, which is what happens when you do mushrooms, when you do LSD, when you get into the occult, you get these revelations from the demonic world. The Bible calls it pharmacia, these drugs, and you become you, you become to this idea that you have divinity. One of my lyrics was Little Miss Medium. So Little Miss Muffet, like the, 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 the little fairy tale. Little Miss Medium, can you awaken the dead masters of your sleep? I'm writing about mediums channeling masters at the age of 16 or 17, not even knowing what mediums did in channeling masters, but all these things were pushing this occult theme. And when I, when I realized through the course of time, covers being pulled down, turning sideways in my bed, that I'm in touch with satanic forces. Kind of like what we see, and we mentioned this recently, in the Billie Eilish videos. I mean, she's the biggest female artist right now, and she talks about all these creepy experiences, paralysis, and all this in her bed, and she, her eyes will roll up in her head, and she's possessed and everything, looking in the, on the album. She has that look of the, the exorcist, almost. And she's tapped into these same forces, and they're using her. And I wrote songs about her, her first album, her big, giant album that came out, was, you know, where do you go when you sleep, basically? And my experiences were based on what was happening when I was asleep. And I wrote a song very similar to that. Uh, when she sleeps, she builds colorful worlds in her mind. She's a queen who alters time. In her right hand, she holds a wand. In her left, the bishops upon pawns. At her feet, all characters kneel. Through her thoughts, they come and go. And on, she's magical, majestic, but explicit, eccentric. All these lyrics I was channeling. But I'm pushing these same four lies. And I've been 
giving my testimony for years. And it just hit me. I'm always saying the new ages are preaching these four lies. I just realized, wow, all four of those lies that were right here in Genesis 3 were in my music. Same deal was going on. The same footprints are there. And that just occurred to me, actually. I knew I was being used by Satan, but I, I, wait, my, those four lies are in my music before I was a Christian as well. Crowd of the Lord Jesus Christ, got deliverance. Uh, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Greek word means delivered, saved. Boom, cried out to him, uh, changed my life, got on my knees, realized Jesus is Lord. And now, man, we're trampling, we're trampling underfoot the works of darkness, man, exposing them for what they are and blowing the whistle. And that's these are some of the reasons you get a, a viewpoint that you won't get in a lot of places because we know it's real. You know, yeah. we've been there in one way or another, you know, and we know God's word is true and the Lord's true. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, 44, he said that Satan sins from the beginning. He did not remain in the truth. So when we're talking about his origins, we're at the book of Genesis. Let's remain. Let's, re, let's, let's understand that he was one time in the truth. And then he didn't remain in the truth. And he sinned from the beginning as the father of lies. And also he's the, a, a murderer from the beginning. We see that in Genesis. No, I, and I think those are, it's so important for us to, to have some, some realness to this. And it's interesting, you know, you point out those four lies of the New Age movement. And then you look at what happened in the emergent church movement yeah. and what liberal theology has taught. And even in when you go over to Bethel, they teach a lot of the stuff yeah. that we just went over. Mary so Williamson, since you say that, and we're already talking about Rob Bell, Mary Williamson has this twist in the scripture. She just ran for about, president, by the way. Yeah. And she talks about what a glorious being beings we are and how powerful we are. And it's this new age, godly, good, we are God's kind of thing. And guess who quotes that? Rob Bell, Bell. quotes that at length as though... I think he's saying it as though he's saying it. I don't know. I don't want to say bear false witness against him, but he's definitely quoting her Nelson Mandela, new age maybe, statement. Yeah, yeah but no, he quotes Nelson Mandela too, but he definitely yeah. quotes Marion Williamson's yeah, quote he does, about being yeah. gods. Yeah, no, it's really, you know, it, it's it's really wild, but we want to try to get back into this. I know this is important. These are things for you guys to hopefully consider, but I think the starting point also to recognize is that we've gone from a clear text in the Old Testament with a clear text in the New Testament pointing back as yeah. well. And so now actually I, too, John 8 44 in Revelation. Oh yeah, 12, a, nine. Amen. Yeah, amen. Right though. And and so and that typically will be the MO that we do uh if we can. Uh and so we want to go and now look at uh a lot of times we'll try to do this chronologically if we can. That is the book of beginnings. I guess probably the oldest book maybe in the Old Testament outside of Genesis could be the book of Job. Book of Job, yeah. And so here we have Satan once again in Job 1, and I'll let you go over uh, some of the scholarly point of views as well that we disagree with or maybe agree with, um, but I will read from right here in Job 1, starting at verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house? And all that he has on every side, you have wa you have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has; he will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, "Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him." So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. So we're seeing a lot there, okay, and on this conversation. 
of Satan up there with God in the courts of heaven. What is going on here and what kind of insights can we get here? And also, what is the scholarly position on who this entity is? Well, first first of all, I think that becomes clear when you study the scripture and we come to know who our adversary really is, is we said already he had it. He fell, you know. Uh, we you have Luke chapter 10. Jesus says, I beheld Satan like lightning fall from heaven, which indicates that he didn't originally, wasn't originally in in the Garden of Eden as a upright creature. It seems like he had already fallen, was cast down to the earth, uh, or took advantage of that place uh, in when God created the new heaven, or created the first earth, I should say. So, uh, uh, and I do believe Jesus, there's a, maybe a double reference going on there because they're casting demons out of people and they're rejoicing. He says, don't rejoice that you yeah. have power of demons, but their names are written in heaven. He says, I beheld Satan fall from heaven uh, like lightning. And I believe what he's saying to them is that, hey, I've seen Satan's demise already. You know, you guys need to rejoice that you're you're saved. And maybe he's saying, he's also speaking of, of Satan's power being uh, disturbed by them casting up demons as well. That could be the double reference going on there. But I think it's important to understand uh, that Satan is a fallen entity and that he was booted out of heaven as far as being a resident that could live in heaven in good standing, obviously, but he still has access to heaven. So we see him as the accuser of the brethren, uh, going back and forth, roaming throughout the earth, seeking to devour, right? We see him also in heaven, uh, accusing the brethren, Revelation chapter 12. And that's why the intertextual witness with Job is so important. He is called in Revelation chapter 12, verse right, round verse 10. Uh, it says, Rejoice, O heavens, for the accuser of the brethren has been cast out. So that's during the middle of the tribulation period. So he's already been cast down, but he has access and can come and accuse the brethren, as we see here in the book of Job. But there'll come a time during the middle of the tribulation period where he's cast down. He no longer has access to heaven. It says, Woe unto the earth because he's come down to you, having great wrath. So uh, we're going to have to contend with him during the tribulation period, and he no longer is up accusing the brethren. He's out just strictly doing the devouring mission. But right now, he accuses the brethren, right? And we see him in heaven accusing Job. Uh, so uh, that's one of his main missions is to accuse us of being massive failures. And guess what? Uh, who can raise their hand and say they're not a massive failure without, you know, with, without Jesus? Well, we all are massive failures, and that's why Jesus died on the cross uh, to save us. So he has an argument against us until we're saved by the blood of Christ and our sins are are cleansed and we have a right standing with God and we're justified by faith through faith in Christ and saved by his wonderful grace, then he loses power of us so long as we resist him steadfast in the faith. As long as we're putting our trust in Jesus and truly have the evidence of faith because we're truly trusting and following him, uh, he can't touch us. Uh, on the other hand, he complains because he says, God, you built a hedge around him. I can't even touch him. You know, It's nice to know there's a hedge around us, but it's also wise to know that sometimes God allows a hedge to go up to test us, which is what happens here. Now, as far as the scholarly research here, a lot of liberal scholars would say, oh, Satan, this is just uh, some official in heaven that's in good, even non-liberal scholars who sometimes side with liberals in too many areas. Uh, and Michael Heiser, who has some good things to say, I totally disagree with him here. He says that, basically, he says that Satan here is not the same as the devil, okay? Satan is in Job is not the devil. He's a good citizen in heaven, basically. He's a prosecuting attorney in good standing with God, just doing his job, basically, if I understand him right. Uh, nothing can be further from the truth. Because when we read through the text here, he's not he's an enemy of Job. He is trying to destroy Job. He's calling God a liar, just like Satan did in the Garden of Eden. Because God is declaring him blameless and righteous, and he's contradicting the Lord, saying, no, he does this with false motives. In fact, in chapter 2, when he passed the first test, and God says, hey, look, you know, have you, you know, considered my servant Job? 
for there's no one like him on the earth, blameless and upright and fearing God and turning away from evil, and he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. Okay, verse four, Satan answered the Lord and, and said, skin of skin, yes, all that is uh, all that man has he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. Now, what's interesting here is he's basically contradicting, speaking against the Lord and speaking against God's testimony, calling God a liar. Okay, you can't be in good standing with God in heaven calling him a liar. He's the father of lies. And he's trying to destroy Job. He's trying to tempt him and destroy him. Uh, and by the way, just the, you know, the term Satan, you know, I mean, just go through the scriptures. Uh, throughout the scriptures, he's called not only Diabolos, but he's called Satanus. He's, this is a, t- now Heiser and some scholars will say, well, this is more of a title than a name. But when you say the, the Fuhrer, well, you're speaking of a person too. You're speaking of Hitler back in, during World War II, right? Uh, today, if you say the president, it doesn't mean you're, not, you're just speaking of a title. You're speaking of President Biden right now. Well, the title, Satan, he's the accused of the brethren, he's the opposer, represents a real being who's the accused of the brethren day and night, who has many, many titles. And sometimes the titles merge with the person. They become like a name as well. And by the way, even in the Old Testament, when you go to Zechariah chapter 3, and it deals with this Satan creature, it says in chapter 3, verse 1, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So he's identified in the Old Testament as the accuser of the brethren, just like he did with Job, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem uh, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked out of the fire? And and so forth. And, and what's amazing about this passage is the Lord doesn't just rebuke a good standing citizen in heaven who's just a prosecuted attorney doing his job. You think the Lord would say, well, Satan, you're a great prosecuted attorney. You're really making me think. Maybe I was wrong about Job. You know, no, Satan is a liar and God rebukes him right there, showing that he is a deceiver. This is the same Satan. Uh, and by the way, uh, that's the same Satan we see in Genesis, the same liar trying to destroy God's people, trying to lead them astray. He's the Diabolos. That's what gets me about Satanists. You know, it's a lot of Satanists think they're so cool. Man, I worship the devil, man, rebellion and everything else. I say, you know what? You worship the greatest narc that ever lived. You know, you, you worship a narc. You worship the greatest quote unquote tattletale. You know, that's what the devil is, man. He goes around first, and he's the worst because he tries to get people to fall. Can you imagine having a brother or sister who tries to get you to do something evil and then goes to tell mom and dad, look what they just did. That would be the worst character child, brother, sibling. If you have a, kid, a brother or sister like that, love them, try to forgive them and hope, pray they get right with Jesus, you know. And don't do the bad thing little. they asked you to do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't do the bad thing you asked to do. But that's what Satan's like, man. Uh-huh. You want to worship that? That's just pathetic. I'm sorry that worshiping Satan is the most loser thing you could possibly do. And I say that with love to anybody who's been deceived in doing that, in case we have any Satanists watching this. Jesus loves you, man. Jesus made you. He created you in his image. You're going to stand before him, not Satan, on Judgment Day. And he gave himself to save you. He died for your sins. He paid for all the sins you committed against him in his great love so you could actually be forgiven. I don't care what you've done. If you truly repent and put your trust in him, since he died for all of our sins, you could be right with him. And we say this because we love you. I say this as one that was on the wrong side, too. But God showed me grace, and he wants you to know that grace as well. But we'll move on. No, yeah, amen. And this is one of the things, you know, I know you mentioned without giving reference, but if you guys were wondering at what we were talking about in terms of, you you did on the Luke 10 text, but we're going to use that one again. But specifically, when you read 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, and in this, and context, in this yeah. context, when you read quite clearly in Job 1, when he asks him what he is doing, and where do you come from, and then Satan says, from roaming about the earth and walking around it, and then he goes and tries to devour yeah. um, Job. 
when you then read in First Peter 5, 8 that That's Satan right. prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, if you don't parallel those two things, I think you're you're reading it with blinders on. Yeah, those there's the intertextual witness again. Yeah, that's that's a good reference. Another good intertextual witness is not only that uh, throughout the Gospels, Jesus is constantly delivering people from Satan. The same yeah. same you know yeah, a a Septuagint uses the same Greek word that's used here uh, in the Old Testament. It uses Septuagint, same word that's used by Jesus in the Greek. It's the same character. Satan is the enemy of mankind in the New Testament, and he's paired. I mean, the name is. Revelation 12, 9 again, and the great dragon was cast down, the serpent of old, the old serpent, called the devil and Satan. Same deal, Satan right here. He uh, he deceives the whole world, and he was cast down, his angels were cast down with him, which is kind of interesting because uh, Michael Heiser, who's gotten a lot of attention, uh, and that's why I, I brought him up because a lot of people look to him when it talks from a, you know more conservative evangelicals like ourselves. A lot of them look to him for information on who the devil is and so forth. And what's ironic to me is he's got so many things, I think, wrong. In fact, his view of even the fallen angels that yeah. Satan has are not really fallen angels. They're, they're, they're demons who are basically the spirits of the offspring of angels and humans having sex as sons of God with the daughters of men, and then their offspring die and their souls become demons. And he views it uh, based on, you know, uh, you know, extra biblical yeah. writings that, oh, maybe the extra biblical writings are right on this and this is who the demons really are. And uh, these demons are basically the souls of the giants, and they've teamed up with Satan. And, uh, you know, that viewpoint's been around, and long before Michael Heiser was alive, people have had that viewpoint, different scholars and so forth. But, uh, again, where is the biblical witness to this? Where is the scripture? Where's the chapter and verses that say, hey, this is who the demons are? And it bothers me. It breaks my heart that a lot of people just jump and say, this is who the demons are. I'm saying, well, I don't care what, you know, extra biblical writers said years and years and years ago, because they said all kinds of bizarre things. You know, what does the scripture say? When I go to Revelation chapter 12, it says that Satan drew a third of the stars with him while from heaven, while these spirits of these dead giants were never in heaven. And in Revelation chapter 12, he draws a third of the stars with him. Michael Heiser says, well, the stars that he's drawing, it never says that they're angels. Well, first of all, I'd have him do, and I've studied, we've studied, I've taught over for over 10 years in the book of Revelation, verse by verse, way more than 10 years, actually. And uh, and you look at every time you see a reference to stars in the book of Revelation, it's typically, uh, if not always, virtually, or almost always references to angels, you know, angelos. Uh, even the 12, the seven stars that Jesus holds are the, 12, the seven angels, churches, the seven churches. Angels, churches. And those could be considered human uh, pastors or leaders or messengers to the churches that bring the message. But then you have the star that falls from heaven. It's an entity, you know. But in Revelation 12, scriptures, best interpret scripture, scripture itself. This is basically the exclamation point on the view I'm giving because it goes on to say, Satan was cast down and his angels were cast down with him. So it talks about third of the stars he draws. It goes on to say, these are implied that these are the angels that he led astray uh, from heaven. So I think it's very, very clear uh, in the book of Revelation that the that we're fighting against Satan and his fallen angels, not the spirits of giants that once lived. I'm not, I'm not discounting the view of the sons of God and daughters of man and their offspring. I'm discounting the view that the souls of those giants are the demons that we contend with today. I believe they're fallen angelic beings and Satan drew a third of the angels with him because we have other fallen angelic beings even in the council of God in heaven that are fallen ones that are not part of the godly council, but uh, the spirit that, you know, the Lord says, who will go be a lying spirit in, in this prophet's mouth? Okay, that's not obviously a good angel. So you have bad angels besides Satan up there working with Satan, which are the fallen angels. 
not the spirit of the spirits of the Nephilim. And I know we're kind of going a little little field, but since we're talking about Satan, we want to also understand who he's working with. And they are very, very powerful entities that we don't think are just kind of just weird offspring of giants, but they are fallen angels who are created higher than us. And that's why we read in uh, Jude, and we read in in Second Peter chapter two that these angels are created higher than us. It talks about their judgment, you know, because it's all fallen angels yeah. that were judged, not the spirits of giants. No, amen. And and the reason why we uh, you know are laboring this point is because this is important. I mean, it, it really <laughs> is. If if I didn't think this is the same Satan, I I would have real problem with what First Peter is saying. It would almost be, oh, maybe First Peter's ignorant about that. Maybe he, yeah. maybe Peter just didn't really know. Right, that's a good point. He didn't have you know the Second Temple Juda- Judaic viewpoint as as we have today, you know, and so forth. So we want to make sure that we're looking at these things. And well, what do we have that's clear in Scripture that we can look back and say, hey. Wait, this this obviously is a parallel here to what's going on, and and I w- I want to say that for the next one that we're going to be talking about because we're going to go through a couple of the the key texts, and and for you guys we're going to go through Isaiah fourteen and Ezekiel chapter twenty eight. In Isaiah fourteen and Ezekiel chapter twenty eight, we have a fall, and we're going to be talking a little bit about some near and far prophecies, and this is not something that oh we're only going to get this from Isaiah 14, that this could be talking not just about one specific thing, but actually two separate things at the same time. And 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 hopefully maybe after we'll read this in Isaiah 14, we'll talk about how that actually happens just a few chapters earlier in Isaiah. Yeah. So in Isaiah 14, starting at verse 4, it tells us who it's talking about, right? Yeah, and you could maybe just read yeah. a couple of those verses and jump to verse around 9 or 10 or whatever, yeah. because for the sake of time, and get to the reference where it's referring to Satan. Yeah, but, yeah, a, but I start with a, the man reference. Yeah, because we want to make sure that you guys know that we're not just saying, oh, this is only referencing this, because I think no, that is a miss as well. Because it's definitely talking about the king of Babylon, too. Yeah, because it says Isaiah. that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. Now I'm going to jump back down to verse 9. It says, she, or I'm sorry, verse 8. Even the cypress trees rejoice, you and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the mu- the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms are your covering. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Now I could read more, but I think that that does the. uh, Yeah. And your point there, Chad. Well, my point is that when I see this, and I know what your I, point is, but I want everybody to hear it. And and I've listened to a number of of commentators, people that I absolutely love and believe are one hundred percent with us on orthodox position. And somebody yeah. had a different view here, not as much as Ezekiel twenty eight, but here I'm like, hey, you know what? Maybe I can have some disagreement. But when I see this text, first of all, I see someone getting shot down, right? I see someone exalting themselves up above the throners of God. And then him being thrown down, it just reminds me so much of Isaiah 
1018, which we've already referenced. Or Luke, Luke. Oh, I'm Luke. sorry. Yeah. No, I'm sorry. Luke 1018, yeah. 10, which we've already referenced. But you see, once again, Jesus which says, talking by the way, for, just so they understand, because that I saw Satan fall, from, fall heaven. from heaven like lightning. That's right. Right. And you have a fall coming down. And like I said, I've heard the references. Oh, well, this is. You know, there was this this mythology, and you had Baal, and someone tried to take over the throne, but he was too small, no. so he was thrown down. So God's using this to say, hey, this is just like the Babylonian king. This is just going to be you again. I, I just do not see that this is only talking about No, it about obviously goes beyond the king because he's thrown down from heaven, okay? Uh, keep in mind, we've already got the precedent from the very first few chapters of Genesis that there's double references going on with regard to Satan and the entities he uses. So it's very possible that the king of Babylon was possessed by Satan, being used by Satan as a picture of the future king of Babylon. I say that as a uh, more of a metaphoric, more metaphorically, not literally the king of Babylon. But uh, you know what? It's interesting because the Antichrist will be possessed by Satan and the dragon will give his power, it says, to the Antichrist. So the king of Babylon, uh, there's a double reference going on in Genesis, the serpent. A literal entity. And by the way, we know if, and, and you know, with all due respect to Heiser and all these other guys we view, oh, this is really, this is Satan. He's this serpent creature, and that's how he was created. Uh, no, there is a double reference because if you look at the curse, you just keep reading, the curse is to a physical creature that's now on oh, yeah, his yeah, belly. Yeah, Genesis so 3, forth, yeah. Right, so there's a double reference going on there, I believe also to Satan's judgment because his head will be smashed uh, by the seed of the woman. Uh, and by the way, the reference is there, uh, you know, the King James, you know, you know, uh, Lucifer, son of the morning, you know, yeah. and uh, that that actually a lot of people say, well, that's not really a good translation. Actually, it means shining one. If you look at the words there, that could be translated shining one uh, very easy. And, and the, Lucifer works, I believe, as well, uh, son of the morning. And it's interesting because uh, he's the angels, you know, Job, when the angels rejoiced, when the earth was created in chapter 38 through 40, what did they do? It says the the morning stars. Morning stars, yeah. Right? They they rejoiced and they, they sang for joy when the Lord created the heavens and the earth or or when they created when he created the earth, you know. So you have this reference to uh Satan because you have this double reference going on. In fact, when we go to the book of Daniel, you see this throughout the scripture. I'm 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 not like 98, 99%. I'm convinced by scripture from Genesis onward, you see these double references going on. You see uh the you know the fourfold kingdom starting with the head of gold, uh Babylon, the Medo Persia, uh, and then you have the belly, you know. Uh, you have the silver, then you have uh, Greece, and then, Rome, Greece yeah. and then Rome. And what's interesting is, uh, and the liberals will say, well, it's really, you know, Medo, Medes, Medes and the Persians are two separate kingdoms, and the Grecian is the last kingdom, which one is on, ridiculous. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> but not not to go too far afield there. But when you see that, and he talks about the Prince of Persia, he's a spiritual entity now. You're talking about the Prince of Persia, you, your mind might go, oh, he's talking about the king of Persia here. No, he's talking about a spiritual entity that Gabriel was at war with and fighting with, and and he prayed, he says, it's been 21 days, you know, since I've been able to answer your prayer because I was hung up in battle with the Prince of Persia. And then the Archangel Michael came and helped me, freed him to go and talk to Daniel. So we have this double reference going on again. There's a spiritual war. And if you're a liberal, you don't even believe in prophecy. You don't believe in, in, in the spiritual world and so forth. Or you believe, you know, or you have just a half, you know, way view of it and just kind of hold, you know, and hold fast to the, the, the scripture uh, the way you ought to, half God said, you've been deceived. Liberal theologians and scholars have been totally deceived on this. Uh, we're dealing with a double reference there. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be a conservative scholar and hold a single reference to the King of Babylon. There's yeah. plenty of conservative scholars that are really good scholars in, in yeah. many, many ways, but they'll say, no, it's just a single reference. He's just using exaggerated language. The problem is, is 
when you get to the exaggerated language, quote unquote, you're talking about an entity that's described elsewhere in similar ways, and it's a spiritual entity behind the kings of the earth. In fact, when you go to Ezekiel 28, it becomes more and more of a slam dunk. In fact, and Chad, I know you know this, we've talked about this, but if you look at origin, you look at yeah, uh, that's what I had know, written down. Tertullian, yeah. uh, Politus, even Augustine, who we don't agree with on a lot of stuff. But. Yeah, who we, yeah, and he's saying who we don't agree with on a lot of stuff. But yeah. Even Augustine, uh, they held this view point that there's a double references going on here. So why don't we now get into Ezekiel? Yeah, I, w- I want to definitely get into Ezekiel, and I also wanted to point out one of the reasons we would point to a double reference is some scholars who would even disagree that this is a double reference would say even in chapter seven, and a lot of a lot of people, especially we got. You know, Christmas coming up, I guess, um, sometime soon. A lot of people thinking about Isaiah 7, 14. And it says that the virgin shall be with child, that this is the sign. And a lot of really good scholars would point out, this seems like this is a double reference, specifically because of the word Alma that is used. Because there's a Hebrew word for virgin. There's a Hebrew word for young lady. And there's a Hebrew word for a young lady, Alma, which is ready for marriage. And at that time, somebody was either married, right? Uh, a virgin or a prostitute if they were sleeping around. Yeah. And so they would be a virgin. So a lot of scholars would point out, this is probably the daughter of Isaiah here, but the double reference, because what happens, we, d- yeah. we get the clear in the New Testament and the Septuagint, by the way, but that's for another discussion. But the Septuagint has it, the virgin, because yeah. they knew exactly what was meant. What he was saying. These are Jewish translators before Jesus came. Before Jesus came. Virgin, basically. Yeah, yeah, hundreds of years yeah. uh, before Jesus came. And specifically with that, we have the commentary in the New Testament, the virgin, that's the sign, is that Mary Absolutely. was a virgin. So and you have the double reference with, again, you know, when you look at chapter 7 or 9 of Isaiah, Emmanuel, God with us, they understood this is the references to Messiah, you know. And so the double reference starts way back in Genesis. And you can even go to Daniel, because we're talking about these prophetic books. It's kind of interesting. Isaiah, uh, Daniel, Ezekiel. These are the most incredibly, just amazing, you guys got to get in these books, prophetic books, and they're dealing with these double references a lot, and we're seeing already in uh, Isaiah. And in Daniel, you have this Antiochus Epiphanes character in Daniel chapter 11. And then when you hit to verse, I believe it's verse 36, there's a transition to the Antichrist. And a lot of liberal scholars say, oh, no, it's still talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Can't be talking about Antiochus Epiphanes there. First of all, chapter 11, verse 36 goes all the way to chapter 12, verse 4, and it deals with the time of the end and the resurrection and everything else. It's dealing with a different person at that point. And, all, and by the way, when you get to verse 35, after talking about Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a picture of the Antichrist for sure, it basically gives his career and it ends at verse 35. Then it picks up on a new entity, chapter 13, 11, verse 36, into chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, which has to do with the end times. And by the way, there's contradictory things that don't fit Antiochus Epiphany. It doesn't contradict the Bible, it doesn't contradict itself, but it contradicts that viewpoint that it's still talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. Why? Because it says, uh, he shall not, you know, <laughs> it, basically, it talks about things like, you know, uh, he'll exalt himself above all the, every God, you know. By the way, which ties into the Antichrist pictures and Re- Daniel 9, Daniel 8, Let the Daniel reader 7, understand. Right, it ties into the Antichrist <laughs> that's revealed yeah. earlier, that, that same passage. So you, he's not referring to Antioch's, Antioch's Epiphanies, uh, unless it's a double reference, but there's certain things that don't fit Antioch's Epiphanies because Antioch's Epiphanies didn't exalt himself above every God. He had coins made with him on one side and Zeus on the other. He was God manifest, as he called himself, but he put a temp- he put a idol up in the temple there in Jerusalem, and he put Zeus up. So it says he shall not worship the God of his fathers, right? Have no regard for the God of his fathers. Well, guess what? He, Apollo, Zeus, the Greek gods, he gave, he, he exalted those gods. And uh, he put his head on Zeus because guess what? He's basically saying, I'm, I'm like a manifestation of Zeus, but he was still 
promoting the gods of his fathers. So what I'm saying is when you look at Daniel, you see a double reference too. You see, and we're talking about the Antichrist figure, Epiphany being a picture of the ultimate Antichrist. And then you're seeing words that specifically deal with the coming Antichrist. So unless you understand double reference, which God gives a glimpse into it right away in Genesis 3 and how he, God's way deeper than we want him to be sometimes and we should not want, want to ever limit God. He reveals himself through double references, which we've already established, and they're all over Scripture. And I'm just kind of, uh, I'm kind of giving you a little bit more examples, like Chad was before we get. To, and we didn't rehearse this whole thing before we sat down. So this is this is the answer. You know, I believe the Lord, you know, uh, wants us to understand this. But I'm kind of segueing into Ezekiel 28, which is yeah, really Ezekiel out. 28. As I said, I, I think if you maybe aren't sold on uh, Isaiah 14, which I completely am. Ezekiel 28. I, I some of the things that I'm going to read. If you think this is the King of Tyre. I, that's where I'm going to, okay, I don't know how, this is only the king of Tyre, but no, it's not. Um, I'm going to go, I, I'll start and just read the, the first couple of verses, and then I'll go down to uh, four, uh, 12, 14, somewhere around there. So it says in verse 1, the word of the Lord came, um, came again to me, saying, Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of God's. In the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart uh, heart like the heart of God. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that is a match for you. By your wisdom and understanding, you have acquired riches for yourself and have acquired gold and silver for your treasures. So a lot of times we would look at this and say, clearly, this is a man. You're a man. You're not God. Of course. Well, I'm going to go down to verse 12. It says, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. What are you saying? The king of Tyre, Chad, was never in Eden? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly right. Someone else he's talking about now. That's exactly right. Every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis, lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, and the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers and placed you there. Wait, are you saying that one's a man and one's anointed cherub and they're two different beings? Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, we only have about five minutes left, but I wanted to read that that part. And and I wanted to point out, we already we already did Luke 10, right, of the fall. I also wanted to point out this is him being lofty and, and so forth. And then he's cast down. And when you think about it, I think about the warning also. First Timothy 3.6. This is a warning that some people pass right by, not recognizing. This is of a fall too, of a fall and an exalted position. Because in First Timothy 3.6, it is a warning to not appoint elders that are new converts. Why? Because they mm-hmm. will get puffed up. And what will they fall under? The same condemnation as Satan. So Satan obviously was in some sort of leadership position or the text makes no sense. Absolutely. And I think uh, we've gone kind of full circle here when Chad just realized, well, we've got a few minutes left. I guess we need to, wow, that hour for me went really, really really quick. Really fast. But maybe we should have some admonitions uh, because you kind of said there's a few minutes left. And and I was thinking, man, as you're saying that, I'm like, man, we need to wrap it up with some encouragement and so forth. But you actually did because I'm, you actually segued into that because uh, we're talking about like putting someone in a position as a leadership. Uh, sometimes people will start a new church and then 
right away. It's like somebody's a Christian for about a month, but they show promise. And they'll give them a great position. And they'll get swelled up and say, wow, man, I'm something. And then Satan can deceive them. And they fall in the condemnation of the devil. We need to resist the devil, the Bible says. And when we're talking about Job and how Job, when it talks about Satan in the book of Job, we're talking about the same Satan that it's talking about from Genesis to book Revelation. And when you read about Job uh, and him being an example for us and consider the perseverance of Job in James chapter 5, that comes right on the heels uh, just a few verses before that or so where he talks about resisting the devil, right? And he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then a little bit later he says, consider Job and his perseverance. So it shows you that he's talking about the same devil, you know, contextually that Job was having as his adversary is our adversary. And we get victory the same way Job was to get victory, which was to resist him steadfast in the faith. But what I love about Job is that he recognized, he said that when God's done with me, and he struggled a lot, but he had diff- he had glimpses of faith that kept him from denying the faith and cursing God and dying as his wife and Satan wanted him to do. And the scriptures tell us that he said he wished there was a mediator between him and the Father, right? And he realized there is Jesus. And he says, I know I'll see him in my flesh, the resurrection. He says, I know when he's d- done with me, I'm, I'll come forth as gold. So you have all these beautiful passages where we need to recognize that when these trials God allows because he wants to make us like gold. Satan wanted to destroy Job, but God had a plan because God takes that which Satan means for evil, Genesis chapter 50, and works it for his good. He makes all things beautiful in his time. Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good. For those who love him and are the called according to his purpose, do not let Satan turn your heart against the Lord God and resist him steadfast in the faith, as Peter says. And and as James says, uh, if you, you know, if you submit to God, and it's a, it's a, it's a military term, which means to do an about face and, 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 and submit to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. If you're not, if you're resisting God, then you're drawn near the devil. There's only two different directions you go and you're either resisting God and you're drawn near the devil, you're in big trouble, or you're resisting the devil and you're drawn near to God. And the beauty of this is that we have victory through Christ's blood. As the Bible says, he partook of flesh and blood to destroy the works of the devil. If you put Hebrews chapter 2, verses 12 through 15 and 16, with 1 First John 3, 8 through 10, and other passages. And one of my favorite, Revelation 12, 11, since we looked at 9 and 10, let's kind of end with verse 11. And they overcame him, that is the believers in Christ, those following Jesus, overcame him, that is Satan, who it references in verses 9 and 10. And they overcame him, it says, by the blood of the Lamb. That's where our victory is grounded in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and paying for our sins. Otherwise, we're under his condemnation, but we've been declared righteous. But it doesn't just say by the blood of the Lamb. That's the ground of our victory. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, our testimony, that our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And number three, and they loved not their lives even unto death. They persevered like Job in the faith, and they persevered even to the point of death. Hold on to Jesus. Life is very, very short. Hold on to him, praise him, worship him, and know that he works all for the good for those who love him. The call the coin is purpose, and he will give you victory over the evil one. Amen. You've been listening to the Good Fight Radio Show brought to you by Good Fight Ministries. If you're blessed by this show and would like to partner with us, please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash goodfight. Or you can write to us at P.O. Box 2202, Simi Valley, California, 93062. Or call us toll-free at 1-866-JC-TRUTH. That's 1-866-528-7884. We hope you'll tune in next time on the Good Fight Radio Show.